Last week, we entered into our study of the book of James, and today, uh, without wasting time, we're going to move right into the main body of the letter. We're going to get right into it because that's what James does, you will notice. He goes straight into instruction. As we look at verses 2 through 4 in chapter 1, we're going to begin to look at one of the primary recurring themes in James, and that is how are Christians to think about and respond to trials. But first, let's just think back. Let's remind ourselves a little bit about what we talked about last week to inform our minds a bit for what we're going to be discussing this week. The book of James was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, who, following his conversion and after a special post-resurrection appearance of Christ, went on to become one of the most important leaders in the church. He was the leader of the most prominent congregation of early Christians in Jerusalem and was even one whom we see men like Paul and Peter deferring to. And he wrote this letter, the letter of James, he wrote it very very early on. In fact, it was almost certainly the first New Testament book written probably around AD 44. He wrote with the authority that you would expect someone in his position to write with. As I mentioned last week, James has the highest frequency of imperative verbs of any other book in the New Testament. That means he is giving you more commands per paragraph than any New Testament author. And this is what we call, the book of James is what we call a cyclical letter. It's a little different than most of the letters we see from Paul, meaning that James wrote it with the intention that it is going to be passed around from congregation to congregation. He didn't have a specific unique congregation like the Galatians or the Philippians in his mind when he wrote it. He writes it to the broad group of the 12 tribes of the dispersion, which was a designation for the Jewish people at that time. So reminding them of the prophetic hope that they were looking forward to from passages such as Isaiah chapter 11, Jeremiah 31, 8 through 14, Ezekiel 37, 15 through 22, and Zechariah 10, 6 through 12. They see in those passages, again, that reminds them of the prophetic hope that they are looking forward to, that the 12 tribes of the dispersion are looking forward to. In those passages, you can read about how God has, right now, or at this time, has scattered his chosen people, the nation of Israel. That is why they are called the dispersion. Or the diaspora, he scattered them, they're dispersed. Those whom have been dispersed all over the world. But the Israelites are promised in those passages that they are promised that God will not leave them there, but will bring them back into that same land one day. So here we have members of the earliest Christian communities. They are still meeting in synagogues, actually. Again, that is what the word is actually translated as in, in 2.2, uh, where it says assembly. That's actually the word gay, synagogue. They are primarily, uh, so, so the early Christians are primarily Jewish. There's very few Gentile Christians at this point. And so they do not understand themselves to be branching out and starting a brand new religion. They see themselves as continuing on with the same, uh, the same Judaism as their ancestors. They have just recognized the Messiah. They've recognized that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And just as they had been waiting on the Messiah to come before, now they wait for Him to return. And the beginnings of the Messianic promises have, have been made a reality as, as one from the line of David has now become the perfect sacrifice that all of their sacrifices from the Old Testament had always been pointing to, he has taken the penalty on himself of their sin. He's become their propitiation. And now they await the return of this Messiah to bring about the complete fulfillment of all of God's promises, which again will still come when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom here on earth. So... The designation of the dispersion is actually a way that James opens the letter with an acknowledgement that all of his readers, no matter which group this letter was spread around to, all of these readers understood themselves to be in a state of a type of suffering or a type of trial. They were not where they belong. They were still waiting And this feeling of displacement is only growing because they're finding themselves now at odds 
with many whom they, no more than a decade before, had been going to the synagogue together with, had been celebrating Passover with, had been recognizing as, yeah, more a part of God's chosen nation. But now they are discovering that even though God's Messiah has appeared, the majority of their fellow Israelites have rejected him. And now they find themselves watching these family members turning away to worship a different God, a false God, actually, a false God who's not connected to Christ in any way. You can imagine the awkward conversations between family members as these first Christians are actually the ones being accused of abandoning their heritage. You can imagine the confusion as they respond by pointing out, what are you talking about? That this is the clear path that Israel was on. We are being obedient to the Scriptures. We are rightly reading and understanding the prophecies. Now that Messiah has come, it's clear that following Jesus Christ and trusting Him is the way of obedience. We, we haven't moved from the truth. You have. And when you hear that, it's probably similar maybe to the way many of you might feel as you think back to Christian friends and family who you were close to maybe 20 years ago or so as this new Bible-rejecting Christian culture that excuses sin and makes Jesus into a Savior really only for loneliness or sadness. Maybe uh, that, that Jesus who comes along and affirms you just the way you are. But as you see people that you maybe used to go to church with, or maybe used to be in a Bible study with, and they're now following along that path, that fake Christianity path, that allows them to just keep doing whatever they want and never makes them uncomfortable, never calls them to repentance. And maybe in your conversations with them, you hear stuff like, they're wondering why you're standing where you are while they have progressed, while they have grown so much more in the faith. Maybe they have even confronted you about how you are still clinging to a belief that you should have grown out of by now. And you're like, wait, what? I'm still standing on the Bible here. I haven't moved off of it. I'm still holding on to all the same truths that faithful Christians have believed and taught for 2,000 years. The only difference is I know them a little better now and my confidence in them has only grown. I'm actually pretty sure you're the one who's moving away from God. So indeed, just as Christians and faithful churches find ourselves holding on to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, while the majority of those who call themselves Christians in our culture have left behind some or even most or all of the core Christian doctrines. In the same way, these early Jewish followers of Christ find themselves in the minority of the Jewish community who actually believe all that the Scriptures say and are being told that they're the ones who are wrong, you're the ones who are off, and so they are feeling a type of persecution, a trial. So there is a type of suffering, a type of persecution that just comes from being on the outside of culturally accepted religion that that we can probably relate to here. But in addition to that, when we read the letter, we can get a sense that these Christians are dealing with other forms of trials and suffering. And through the focus on rich and poor in several places, we can, we can be sure that they're facing some, some forms of financial trials in addition, to the, in addition to the persecution that is coming, that is on them, and that they know to be coming. They're, they're feeling that trial too. Based on, actually based on chapter 2, verse 7, there might be a connection between the financial suffering and the persecution. Um, but, there, but there's those trials. But even though James is writing to a broad audience, He seems confident that those that he is writing to will be dealing with trials, like health trials, relational trials, hardships, uh, just general hardships. You can tell by the fact that he uses Job as an example later on in the book, and in chapter 5, that he's not limiting the instruction on dealing with trials to just one particular type of trial. So as I go through this sermon... If you're like, well, you didn't mention my trial, right? No, just, I am thinking that one. Just, that's one I'm thinking of. That's one James is talking about. Put it in the category. 
But in fact, since the book opens and closes with instructions on dealing with suffering and trials, most commentators actually point out that the Christian responding rightly to trials is one of the primary lenses through which the book of James must be read. You need to be looking through that as you read James. So James is probably indicating that suffering is the dominant reality right now in the minds of his readers. That is why it is, uh, that's why he jumps right into it. He just goes right into it before he's, greetings, all right, now command about trials. He, he knows that he needs to address it first so that they will listen to everything else he needs to say to them. And it's why he continually relates many of the other topics in the letter back to suffering, back to trials. It's like if you were having someone over and you had some important things you needed to share with them, but you also knew that their mom just died, that's the first thing you would bring up because that is the thing that's probably foremost on their mind. And it'd be tough to really get through to them about anything if you didn't address that immediately. And it would also help to continually uh, to, to do like James does and continually relate what you're saying to that context. As you're talking, you keep on referring back to how this relates to the death of your mom. Or in this case, James understands this, this, these trials, and so it comes up again and again throughout the book. In fact, as we are about to see, James comes in and he speaks to these suffering Christians with all of the weight and authority that you would expect from someone in his position who is, who, who is currently writing Scripture, but he doesn't do it as some disconnected, impersonal, like army commander. But rather he does it in a loving and pastoral way. He doesn't back away from the authority that is demanded by such a letter, but he speaks to them as a fellow brother. He speaks to them not as their Lord, but as a slave speaking on behalf of their Lord. So if you are a Christian and you are facing suffering and trials right now, James speaks a powerful and authoritative word on how Christians need to be thinking and acting when it comes to them. And if right now you don't really see yourself in that place, then you also need to be attentive to what we see in these verses today. Because you will be in that place, and it is your duty as a follower of Jesus it is your duty and your joy to learn how to be faithful and obedient when those trials come, to prepare yourself for them so that you can grow as a result of them. And we're going to do that. We're going to examine this passage today with the following three points that I see arising out of this text. Number one, the calculation in trials. Number two, the classification of trials. Number three, the culmination of trials. So calculation, classification, culmination. And so with that, let's, let's read again the first four verses in the book of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, point number one, the calculation in trials. Calculation in trials, we're actually going to see both of the first two points in verse 2. But again, look at, look at what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So first, I, I want to point out to you something that, that helps us to understand just how careful and contemplative and loving James is in his writing. Again, this isn't just as some have accused James of being. It's not just a bunch of advice just randomly thrown together quickly. James is careful in his wording. We said last week that this is some of the very best Greek in all of the New Testament, and we see our first example of that right here. James connects sections together throughout the book 
uh, with, with linking words that are much more obvious in the Greek than in our English translations. Our English tries to show them a little bit, and if, with that in mind, you could probably read through and pick some of them out. But, but it's, it's very difficult to see a lot of times. But he uses either the same word or a similar sounding word to connect one thought to another, just to make some of the smaller sections so much easier for meditating on and memorizing, almost, almost uh, poetic sounding in places. So in verses 1 and 2, we see the first example of this, the word for greetings that we talked about last week uh, at, the end of, uh, at the end of the first verse is the word kairain, the Greek word kairain. And we talked about how that word would literally mean uh, to rejoice or to be glad or to be delighted in. And then the word translated as joy is the word keran. So, so you immediately hear the similarities in their definitions and in their sounds. So we would read it like the word for greetings, and then the next two words would sound like kairain pasan karan. And you can just kind of hear that sound, that, that connection there, and the reminder that, that James is being thoughtful, that he is really thinking this through, that he's just not dictating orders. You can, you, he wants you to remember it. He wants you to think about it. You can hear that connection. He's being thoughtful. He's not just entering into a situation where people are suffering and just barking a bunch of orders at him and then leaving. So you see that there, but you also see James' loving pastoral heart when he calls these recipients, my brothers. He says, my brothers. By doing this, he is placing himself in the same position. He is, he is suffering alongside them. He is appealing to them on the basis of what they hold in common as fellow slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have been made into actually a true family, an even greater way than the nation of Israel had understood itself before as a family. Descended from the same specially chosen family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now these, uh, all of these Christians, these early Jewish Christians, are those who have been united together as true sons and daughters of God through his true Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And even though Jesus Christ is James's true physical brother, he calls Jesus Lord. And those whom Jesus has united him to through his mediating work, he now calls his brothers. So this is significant in showing James's true love for these people whom he is about to not just ask, but command some pretty difficult things from. James uses the de- this designation for his recipients actually frequently throughout the book because while these people really are under his authority based on the, based on the roles that have been sovereignly distributed by God, they really are under his authority but he still really does see himself under all of these same obligations that he's sharing with them. James, we're told from church history, dies as a martyr. So he's not asking anything of them that he doesn't live out. So when he gives us this command, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He isn't just saying it the same way you might hear like a PE teacher or a basketball coach demanding you to do something that you're like, you, you couldn't do that. You wouldn't even do that. Right? He's not doing that. He's doing it as a fellow teammate who's just playing a leadership position, another position, a leadership position. And that word translated as count, if you look at that word translated as count, we see the main reason behind the word that I chose for the first point, calculation. You see that word translated in other versions as consider or to reckon. Uh, In other versions, it literally does mean something along the lines of to calculate or to come to a correct conclusion of. So he's, he's saying to think about this rightly. Think about your trials rightly and come to a correct answer. You should count the experience of trials to be joy. That's the correct answer. The very use of this verb implies that thinking this way is a discipline and not something that comes naturally. Right? So like I would never say to, to my kids, you need to consider ice cream to be delicious. Right? That isn't a thing you stop and think about, ponder, and then come to that conclusion. It just naturally comes. The verb that James uses always implies coming to some sort of mental judgment about something. 
to ponder, to consider, and then come to the right conclusion. So he's not saying, like, like a lot of people interpret this, pretend something's a joy, even though, you know, it really isn't. Just pretend it is. And he's not saying to just toughen up and deal with it. And he's not saying just try and focus on the good instead of the bad. He's not saying just put on a happy face. No, he's, he's telling us to really think about this trial in light of all of reality, in light of all that you actually know to be true, to do the work in your head about what is actually happening, what is actually happening, not just what you're seeing, but what is actually going on here, and what it actually means in light of who God is and who you are. Put all of that together, do this mental equation, and look at your trial in light of eternal reality, not how you feel not how you've been told to feel by others. He says, do the calculation right and you will come to the correct conclusion. And that conclusion is that you falling into this trial should actually equal joy for you. Now, distinction, he's not, he's not saying that the actual terrible thing that you might be going through is good. This is different. He's not saying that your friend's death is a good thing. He's not saying that this sinful relational issue you're dealing with is a good thing. That this cancer diagnosis is a good and joyful thing. He's not saying that. He's saying, as you think about the truth, that you go through trials and everything that is entailed in that, then you should come to the conclusion that the going through of the trial is joy. He's saying that when you add everything of importance into this equation, when you add God, when you add his gospel, when you add you and everything about who you are, just think of all of the the glorious realities, even think of the stuff we confessed this morning about being adopted. What does it mean to be adopted sons and daughters of God? You put all of that stuff together and then you, you add in trials, you put all of that into the equation you put them together, and then you will come to the conclusion of joy. The idea is that if you cannot come to this conclusion, when you begin to think deeply about your trials, then like any arithmetic problem, it must mean that you have the wrong factors inserted into your problem you're trying to figure out. God's given you the answer. The answer is not wrong. The only thing that can be wrong is what you're inserting into the problem that doesn't end up equaling joy. So if you're looking at your trials and the circumstances surrounding them and you're coming up with a different ultimate answer than joy, when you do your calculation, then you're not thinking about it right. If at the end of the day, you look at trials as something bad that is happening to you and it needs to stop, or as that which you need to be delivered from, or is something that you just need to, you need to hunker down and live with until it's over. Or if, or if the trials cause you to be bitter, or to sink into worry and anxiety, or to lash out at, in some sort of sinful way at someone else, possibly the one whom you deem most responsible for your trial, maybe you're lashing out at them. If that's what happens, then according to James, it's not just that you are not thinking godly about your trials, you are not thinking rightly about them or even logically about them. So we might let ourselves off the hook by saying, this is the normal way that we think, right? This is the normal way we think and we just maybe need to rise above it. Trials are bad. That's the normal way we think. I need to rise above it. But James is saying that this is actually the way, not the normal way of thinking. This is a corrupted, deluded mind type of thinking, This is the way your sinful mind thinks about trials. It's not the right way. It's not the normal way. It isn't actually the way that someone who is truly thinking rightly with an eternal mindset would think about this. So that that was the whole problem, if you remember, uh, around the argument for churches closing down during COVID. They had all of these reasons for coming to the conclusions that they came to. They weren't thinking rightly about the problem. They were thinking with a temporal mindset. They saw COVID, the, the, the equation is COVID plus being around each other equals possibility of earlier death. And that's the problem. That's the, so there it is. That's the equation. 
That's everything to it. But what was missing from that equation was Christian thinking. Everything that Christians believe and hold dear was not in there. That this life is meant to be temporary. That our eternal life is primary. The treasures in heaven never corrode. That we are owned by Jesus Christ and that He has given us a mission and a purpose and obedience to Him involves being around others. If, if the factors involved in that initial equation were the only factors, then coming to that conclusion would be understandable. But the problem was that they didn't think through the full equation. And when you add all those other factors in from the spiritual reality that we know to be true from the Word of God, then you not only get a different answer, it's not just a different answer, it's the right answer. You get the right answer. So when you think of trials the same way that the world does, when, when you think of them as a bad thing that shouldn't be happening and that you need to get out of, you're not thinking like a Christian. You need to add into your equation the sovereignty of God. You need to add into your equation the gospel that declares that you are justified and adopted as his child. You need to add into the equation that you, the reality that you are a slave to this God, that he owns you now. That you need to add into your equation the fact that you now await the return of your Savior, Jesus Christ, who will bring an end to all pain and sorrow, and you will live eternally with Him apart from sin and apart from all of its consequences. That this life is the only chance that you actually have to strive to obey Him and to live for Him in whatever situation that He places you in. Two, this is the only opportunity you have to turn against the world and follow him. When you factor all of that in, then the Christian who is thinking right will come to the right conclusions about trials and will be able to count it all joy whenever they find themselves in one. It's not, not a fleeting, glib, fake happiness, but a deep, resolved joyfulness. And we'll see the ultimate reason that James gives for coming to this conclusion in our last point. But before we get there, we need to see that James really does have no interest in sugarcoating this for us. He isn't saying anything like, the reason we count it all joy is because trials aren't as bad as you think they are. It's not it's because they're not really that big of a deal. There's just, it's just one little thing, come on, get over it. He's not saying that. You know, the way you might tell a kid who falls down and scrapes himself, you know, get up, just brush it off. It's just a little scrape, brush it off. Get on with your life. He isn't content to let us think for a second. Well, he probably has in mind some other, some different type of trial. She surely wouldn't say the same thing if he knew what I was going through. James isn't minimizing trials. He actually makes sure that we are clear that he is thinking of trials the same way that he is. He shows us that he has the correct classification of trials as well. And that, so that's point two. Classification, the classification of trials. Definition would be fine too. It doesn't begin with a C. It is so hard for us so many times to have someone try and correct us when we are dealing with any situation that we know that other person doesn't share, let alone to have them try and teach us how to respond to suffering when we know they, they haven't experienced this the same way I have. They're, they're not going through it like I have. And while that, that might be true, that someone who tries to help you through a trial by using God's Word, they might not fully understand exactly what you are going through. But you can't say the same thing about God. He knows your trials. He knows them perfectly. He knows your suffering. And He is the one who tells you through James. Count it all joy. And just to make sure we know that James has the same understanding of trials in mind, we see three key components for the correct classification of trials. Just in this little, again, this little section of verse 2. So if you want to, you can put three little subpoints here. They are, trials are inevitable, trials are unexpected, and trials are diverse. Inevitable, unexpected, and diverse. So subpoint A, we can expect trials 
because they are inevitable. That is what we see in that little simple conjunction that's translated as when or whenever. It's not a matter of if you will face trials, it is when, whenever you face trials. Therefore, it is, just, just with that in mind, just if we only preached a sermon on this little conjunction, we could come away with the application, it is foolish to live my life in such a way that everything is all about avoiding trials. Because God has told me they're inevitable. That's going to just lead me to disappointment. The trial of disappointment. You will face trials. You will face trials. You will either face the trials that are coming your way, or you will face other trials that come as a result of trying to get out of the way of those other trials. There is no way out. This is a biblical expectation. And we see it throughout the New Testament. John 16, 33, Jesus says to his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation. And then he, he goes on. He doesn't tell them, but don't worry, it won't be that bad. He doesn't classify it as mild. He doesn't say it's no big deal. No, the encouragement that he ends up giving after that lies in who he is in relation to the world, right? Take heart, I have overcome the world. It's not that the trials are bad. It's that I have overcome the world. Again, going back to thinking rightly about our calculation. But the promise of tribulation is right there from Christ. He promises tribulation for us. And listen to the ministry of Paul in Acts 14, 21 through 22. We read, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is the only way in, through tribulations. And just so we're clear, not that you're doubting Paul, but just so you're clear on the type of tribulations that Paul is talking about, if you were to look up at the previous two verses, you get the sense of what he's talking about. So we just read 21 and 22, but in Acts 14, 19 and 20, we read, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So, there is no doubt about what Paul is referring to here. He he has just had a crowd of people throw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. And then they drug what they presume to be his lifeless body out of the city. It's a difficulty most of us haven't faced. So when Paul is telling them that the only way we enter the kingdom of God is through many tribulations, it would be tough to find a trial that would fall outside of his classification of tribulation, as he's probably still talking, saying those words with a swollen mouth. But again, we get a sense of the the logical thinking, that proper calculation about trials in the words of Paul. Harkening back to our first point, he's he's not saying it turns out rocks being thrown at you. Don't worry, it actually feels more like a gentle massage. I was surprised. Wasn't that bad? Or, Or things could be worse. No, just like Jesus, he doesn't minimize the experience of the trial. Instead, he points past it. He points to what we should actually be thinking about instead. That's the way into the kingdom. It's like a woman pregnant and giving birth. Right? So yesterday, we, we didn't hold a, a pregnancy shower. Congratulations, you get to deal with all of the tiredness and sickness and all that stuff. You're going to be miserable for the next nine months. Woohoo! have a gift. It's, it's not like, no, it's a baby shower because of what's coming through the trial. A baby. And that is something to be joyful and excited about. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom. This is what Paul is saying. So Paul says it. Christ says it. We can expect trials. If happiness is my goal, then trials stand in the way, and therefore, I'm going to be upset. But since my goal as a Christian is the kingdom of God, and and tribulations don't block the doorway, but rather are a part of the doorway, 
then like the disciples in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, our souls can also be strengthened in the midst of trials, knowing it's through these I have to go to enter the kingdom. Peter also reminds us of this same truth. In 1 Peter 4.12, listen to what he says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Again, it's, this isn't strange, it's expected. Almost like, what exactly were you expecting? This is the understanding of what it means to be a Christian. That's what Jesus was saying. And again, he goes on to, to not minimize the trial, but to remind them of the same truth that James does. In, in, verses, in verse 13 of 1 Peter 4, we read, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Again, calling us back to that calculation, the trial isn't good. It's fiery. That's not a good word. But it is still an occasion for rejoicing when Christ and his glory is our goal. So we need to understand that trials are inevitable, that they are an assumed part of life and even a needed part of the Christian life. So we need to get out of the habit of living our lives in a way that prioritizes trial avoidance and instead look to living in constant preparation for trial obedience. Listen, friends, think through the implication here because if trials are inevitable, then to whatever extent the goal of your life is to avoid discomfort and suffering, you will only succeed in being more uncomfortable, anxious, worried, distracted, and disappointed because they are inevitable. The Bible's help in dealing with trials is useless to us if we treat it like an owner's manual that we only get out if something happens to go wrong. Right? When we understand that trials are a matter of when and not if, then reading our Bible also becomes more strategically important, more important and more of a joy, because we know that we need what is here for what lies ahead. It's important that we really believe that trials are inevitable, that each one of us will face trials, that it's not if, it's when. But we also need to know that not only are they inevitable, but sub-point B, they will be unexpected. So I know that sounds like the points are negating themselves. It's not negating the previous point. Trials in general are inevitable, but specific trials generally come when we don't expect it. That is what is meant by the word that it's translated as meet there. When you meet trials of various kinds or when you face trials of various kinds, the word literally means something more akin to to fall into. It carries with it the idea of an unexpected encounter. The word is used only two other places in the New Testament, and they're both by Luke. Once in Acts 27.41, it's used to describe when the ship that Paul was on strikes the reef. The, the word for suddenly striking, suddenly striking a reef unexpectedly. It's that same word that James is using here to describe encountering trials. And the more well-known place uh, where it's used, we see that word in the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10.30, where Jesus begins the story and says, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan and says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. Right there where it's translated fell among or fell, that's the same word. So the idea that this happened suddenly to him, he, the idea is that it happened suddenly to this man. He was not expecting the robbers, and they're the robbers. He falls into them. So since trials are inevitable, we should expect to be surprised by trials throughout life. They will come for certain, you will, and you will certainly be caught off guard by them. Both things are true. We should rest in the truth that they will come and that they will be surprising. Otherwise, once again, you will lose your patience. You will slip into sadness. You will demonstrate some sort of quality that is unbecoming of a Christian if you forget either of those things and act like for some reason those don't have to be true of you if you're obedient enough. So since they are surprising, this is all the more reason to pay attention to what we are taught about trials and Christian character and perseverance because you do not know when you will be in the midst of one. This isn't like learning about Medicare when you're in your 40s. Not that that's a bad thing to do, but you know you have years before that's really going to help you. 
This is like learning about how to use a parachute while you're in a plane that's run out of fuel. Any moment you could find yourself free falling through the air and you really want to know what those parachute instructions are. You need to be ready. There is no doubt that many of us will face some sort of trial this week, maybe even today. It could happen at any moment. An unexpected trial, something, something happens out of seemingly nowhere. This isn't, it's not to say that, by the way, that you'll never see a trial coming in some way. Now you can, sometimes you can see, especially physical trials, you can see them coming. But even in those trials where you kind of know something is coming, you still don't know all the little intricacies, all the little trials within the trial. There are still things that are going to come as a shock, still things that will end up being worse than you thought, aspects that you had never even considered. Those will pop up. So, the reality of trials means that they are inevitable, that they are unexpected. And also one just quick final subpoint, subpoint C, they're diverse. They're diverse. So you can see that right at the end of verse 2, can't you? Right there. Of various kinds. The, the word translated as many kinds means varied, means manifold. It literally, mean, it literally means many colored. So just all over the place, all over the spectrum. So even though there is an argument to be made that the primary trials that the original readers might have been dealing with were possibly identifiable, almost certainly some form of persecution, and James uses a word here that covers everything that we can think of. Every, so just again, just because I'm not mentioning it today, that doesn't mean it's not covered in this. So the idea is that you will face trials, you will tr face trials from everywhere, and you will face trials in every part of your life. There is no area of your life that is off limits, that is immune from trials. So, so to kind of put this whole point together, James is affirming that the type of trials that he is commanding us to count as joy are the same ones that you are going to face. They are the inevitable ones that come at unexpected times and that arise out of every area of your life. Those are the trials. You have no trials that fit somewhere outside of these categories. Therefore, you are commanded to count them as joy. And now for the third point, the third point, the why of this command. So knowing full well the various inevitable, surprising trials that await each of us, James tells us to take, to take not the trial itself, but the fact that you are going through it. And then in the greater ledger of your life, you need to put that trial in the joy column. Why? Because of this third point, the consummation of trials. The consummation of trials. In other words, where do they lead to? So in verses 3 and 4, we read, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he says, For you know... He doesn't say, know this. He says, for you know. Because this is something that we know. Even, even coming into this sermon today, I'm sure most, maybe there's some of you who, are, who haven't been read your Bible much or you're just kind of new to Christianity and you're reading this and you're like, that's insane. I, I've never thought of that. But, but for those of you who have been a Christian for a while, I'm not telling you a new command. You might even have this passage memorized. This is something that Christians know. I'm sure, again, most of you, uh, the, the overall concept that God has said that in the end, trials are good for you, you're not surprised by that. It's something that you have heard before. This is actually some basic Christian teaching. This probably isn't your first trials sermon. We have all heard the metaphor about how trials test our faith to make our faith stronger. We've heard the metaphor, just like, you know, just like exercise is initially hard, but the more we do it, the stronger we become. That's a good metaphor. You've probably heard it before. In fact, the word translated as testing here in this, in this verse is, is used only one other place in the New Testament. It's in 1 Peter 1, 5 through 7. And guess what the context is there? It's the place where we are told that, that we're those who are being guarded by God's power for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. And then we read, if this is, or in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by 
various trials so that the tested, there's that word, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter's teaching pretty much the exact same concept as James. This is a common teaching among Christians. James teaches it. Peter teaches it. Look what Paul says in Romans 5, 3, and 4. Romans 5, 3, and 4. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So this passage, that passage in Romans, actually has so much in common with James 1, 2 through 4 that many people, commentators are kind of split on this, believe that Paul might be actually alluding to the letter of James, that he actually read it. Or perhaps just expanding on something he had heard from James in one of their meetings. But but the point is clear that what we have here in James 1, 2 through 4 might sound radical, it might sound extraordinarily difficult to obey, but it was actually common the common understanding of the Christian, it is a basic, ground-level Christian teaching. Our problem isn't that we've never heard of this, it's that we don't obey it. When trials come about, it is so easy for us to just make excuses in our head, to fall back into complaining, feeling sorry for ourselves, or just, just kind of passively passively enduring the trial until it's over. We might believe that what this passage just said is true, and I know I'm supposed to do this, I, I just can't. So, so we panic with the, next health care, uh, with the next health scare that we have. We get so anxious and worried that we have trouble sleeping. We, we let some relational issue with a family member or church member bother us so much that we speak sinfully or we become embittered. But we still know But I I know I'm supposed to count it all as joy. This is where James gets uncomfortable with us again. This implication here. The command is to count it as joy because you know, don't you? That this will produce steadfastness and that that will have its full effect, which will make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know that. You and I know this to be true. We know because God has said so. This is the Word of God. I believe the Word of God. This is what he says. He says so here. He says it throughout the Scripture that trials will ultimately be for our good, that God gifts us. Remember back from Philippians? God gifts us with suffering and trials to do exactly what these verses have said. They're to help us grow in patience, endurance, and steadfastness. I know that. We know, if I was to put together a little test and ask you all, What is the purpose of trials? You all, being the good Bible students that we have here, you would give me answers like those. Patience, endurance, steadfastness for our growth. You would do that. You'd give those answers and you would be correct. And you would have proved that you know what the Bible says about trials, but you will not have proved that you believe what the Bible says about trials. We feel right here in this statement that underlying principle of being double-minded again, don't we? If this passage is true, that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and that's what leads to Christian maturity, and that's what James is talking about there, we'll talk about that in a second, and that's what leads to Christian maturity, and yet we still refuse to count it as joy that God would test us in this way, then the actual conclusion can only be that becoming steadfast, becoming mature, isn't actually as important to me as I claim that it is. As much as we might say that we want nothing more than to become more and more like Christ, we want nothing more and more than than to be sanctified, Our refusal to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds means that we would actually, actually rather be comfortable than Christ-like. So most of us can think of that, can't you? 
Think of that Christian man or woman who, who you want, no matter how old you are, I want to grow up and become like that person one day. Maybe you have a parent like that or, or a mentor, maybe a pastor, maybe you have uh, seen someone on the pages of church history, but you see in them this uncompromising faith, a faith that's not shaken, that's, that's immovable. That's what steadfast means. You see that steadfastness and you're like, I, I want that. Well, do you? Because we're told right here how it happens. God speaks to us through James and says that the testing of your faith produces that. The idea behind this word, the steadfastness, is being the type of person that stays the course of action no matter what. So do you really want to be steadfast, Christian? Do you really want to be that type of person one who is faithful to the end, one who when they, are, they are, when they are squeezed by the most painful trials, all that spills out of them is more godly Christian character. If that is what you truly want, then good news. Because that which has the ability to accomplish that in your life is inevitable and it's unexpected and it's manifold. You are guaranteed to come into all kinds of opportunities in all kinds of ways at all, in all times that can produce this in you. But do you really want it? If you look at the Apostle Paul who, who got back up and went right back into the city that just stoned him and drug what they thought was his lifeless body outside and left it as trash, got back up and went into that city, and you really say, there is nothing I want more in this life than for God to make me like that. Make me like that. Then you truly will be able to count your trials as joy. Yes, you will be sad about some of the actual trials, about what's actually happening. You don't, you don't want to lose a dying loved one. There's nothing happy in and of that. You don't want to deal with the pain, the exertion that's going to come from this new health scare that's maybe in your life. But the opportunity that comes to you in this trial, the steadfastness that God has wrapped up in the trial package, the chance to be obedient, to grow in your faith so that God might use these means to make you what you want to be the most, in that you can rejoice. Steadfastness, endurance, those things cannot exist in the believer apart from testing. That's your only way there. But even but keep looking, steadfastness isn't even the final goal. Unlike the Stoics of James's time who, who thought that endurance was the final product, that's not what we see here. Even though it's a wonderful characteristic and you should long for it, we are told that we are to let steadfastness have its full effect, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is, there's another clever play on words where James, uh, that James uses here that you can see in the Greek where he uses the same word twice to make his point in a memorable way. Essentially, what he's saying here is, let the perfecting effect yield its perfect work. Let the perfecting effect yield its perfect work. This is a... Again, this is talking about maturity, a reference to spiritual maturity. Some translations actually reflect that and translate it as maturity. Here he is using terminology similar to the, to the Hebraic traditions that, that referred to men like Job. You'll remember these, Job, Abraham, Noah, as, as blameless and upright. Not that they're sinless. It's the idea of attaining the position that God has created you for. So right back to that line that Greta just sung to us. Attaining the position that God has created you for. So it's not merely that you learn to not be bitter or to not be anxious in your trials, but you eventually become a mature person. So it's a difference. Not, not a person trying not to be bitter, but a person who's not bitter. Not a person who tries not to be anxious, but a person who's not anxious. 
We also need to see that that verse 4 is actually another imperative. It's a command. Verse 4 is a command. It might sound passive with a, with a word like let. That sounds like a passive, more passive command, but it is a command. It's an imperative. Letting something happen is the deliberate action of not getting in the way of it. So this is key because it again teaches us that we are to be active in our trials if we want to mature. This is why so many people wonder why, after going through so many trials, and then the next one comes up, I'm still anxious and terrified, or I'm still bitter, but I've been through so many trials, why aren't they doing a perfecting work in me? It's because if you just endure trials by putting your head down and just trying to make it until the pain or sadness go away, because again, your goal is get the sadness out, get the pain out. That's your goal is just to live through it. If your idea of enduring a trial is just waiting it out, then you are not going to mature. You you might become a little calloused to trials because they happen so frequently, but don't mistake that for maturity. You're not actually growing. You're not actually maturing. This is why mature Christians aren't necessarily the ones who have gone through the most trials. They're not the ones who have gone through the most trials. They're the ones who go through trials without wasting them. They are determined in the trial to learn more about God, to learn more about His character, to actually experience it, not just know it, but to experience it. They are determined to place more trust in the words of God than they ever have before and thereby place their foundation, dig their foundation even deeper, even further into God's word and its truth. They meditate on the goodness of God and His gospel, and they let, the, they let the full weight of this new trial press hard up against the joy that we have in the gospel. They let it press up against it as hard as it can. And as a result, they gain even greater confidence as they see how easily God and His gospel can bear this weight. The command in verse 4 is the command to not waste our trials, to not just hang on for dear life, but to stand up in them and hold the wonderful truths of the gospel and all the promises that are contained in it, to hold them up and examine them afresh and watch how much more brilliant they become, how much more brilliant the light is in front of this new dark background. And as we do this, we change, we mature, we grow. We change from those whose faith is primarily based in a knowledge of the truth to those whose faith has been made genuine, who don't just know the glories of God and His gospel because we've understood them mentally, but we have begun to really experience them. We become those who have really actually tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Again, it's not so much that we stop worrying and stop being anxious and bitter because God commands us not to be. That, that is a good desire and we should cultivate it. And when it comes down to it, the command alone to not be bitter or anxious or, or worried is enough to warrant our obedience. That's true. But what happens as we face trials rightly? As we do our calculation correctly? and as we actively engage in them, is that we are determined to grow in steadfastness. And as we're determined to grow in steadfastness, we let that steadfastness grow us in maturity. What happens then is that now I'm not worried or anxious or bitter, not only because God tells me not to be, but because I have not wasted my trials, but by using them wisely as an opportunity to really put my faith to the test, And I've seen just how amazing the promises of God are. I've seen the brilliance of the gospel and its importance over and against everything else. And now, I don't get worried or anxious or bitter because in light of these promises, in light of the character of God, as I do my new calculation, those responses don't make any sense. They don't make any sense anymore. It's like when I was a child, I actually had to be commanded to eat all the steak on my plate. But as I matured, the goodness of that command in light of the goodness of steak 
became more and more obvious to the point where not finishing a steak now seems completely insane. That's completely illogical thinking. That's the way God changes us as we think about rightly about trials. And the, the, phrase, the phraseology that we see here is also a great reminder of our eschatological hope. The fact that we are, that we are not complete, but we await that day. We're not yet complete, but we await that day. These temporary earthly trials, they're leading to the day of full, final completion. And that hope that we have, knowing that Christ will return and he could do it at any moment, at any moment, I mean, I'm excited for the 50th anniversary, <laughs> but I'd be fine not making it there. Knowing that Christ will, re- will return at any moment reminds us that trials for our growth are relegated to this brief time on earth as we wait for our Savior, who will one day complete the work in us that these trials right now have begun doing. It's a reminder that if we are looking forward to the return of Christ, if we really believe that he could return for us this afternoon, then it helps us to think of trials on a day-to-day basis, an hour-to-hour basis. Am I responding faithfully, obediently, right now? Because if Christ were to return tomorrow, then whatever your most pressing trial might be right now, it'll be over. And it will have only had any eternal value insofar as you have responded righteously to it. It's been a particularly long trial. What a waste of time all that anxiousness will be exposed as. And that day will be, you mean I use this trial for sinning instead of becoming more like Jesus? I had all this time with it and that's, that's what I did? I was filled with anxiety when I could have been preparing myself to be more ready when he arrived? That was illogical thinking. And this verse ends in the promise that when you let trials do their perfecting work in you, you will lack nothing. If you have come to find that your faith has grown strong enough to deal righteously with even the most difficult trials... The most difficult trials, what else do you need after that? Christian, is this not the one thing that in this life you want more than anything else? To trust God so completely, to be so firmly established in the foundation of his word, to be so in awe of all of the wonderful promises that are ours in Christ be so in awe of those things that you cannot be moved, that God has made your faith so strong that you can be like a person who's just walking around normally in a hurricane, the hurricanes of life, able to continuously rejoice in God who has saved you, helping those who are being blown around next to you while you walk unaffected. Isn't it true that in this life, the thing that you desire most is to be as much like Jesus Christ as possible? Isn't that true of you, Christian? Do you really want to be like Jesus more than anything? Do you you really want it more than having great physical health? Do you really want it more than that? Do you really want it more than having the perfect family life with no conflict? Do you really want it more than your dream employment opportunity? Do you really want it more than being able to rest and relax? Do you really want it more than financial security? Do you actually want Christ-likeness more than comfort? Do you? Because God has told us in this passage the way we get there. The way to the spiritual maturity that we claim we want so desperately. The way to become as much like Christ as is possible in this life. He's told us about it. And that pathway goes right through those trials not around them. Becoming spiritually mature isn't the complicated mystery that so many of us make it out to be. The path is actually clear. The question is, will you take it? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be 
perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word, your word that confronts our wrong thinking, and it does so clearly, authoritatively, and compassionately. Lord God, I do pray for us as a church that we would all, as one, long to be made more and more in the image, into the image of your Son. That that would be our primary goal, that it would be so important to us. That it would be the thing for which we long for more than anything else. That while we might hate the circumstances in a trial, we will count it all joy because of the opportunity to get to that place. Oh, Lord, help us to be faithful in trials. And we wouldn't just long for our own Christ-likeness, for our own spiritual maturity. We wouldn't see that as the end, but we would see the spiritual maturity of those around us, those who we've covenanted with as fellow members of Grace Church. See that as our priority also. And then give us grace to respond faithfully and the trust in your word to respond boldly and obediently. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.